Hello and welcome to Bloody Violent History and 2023. This is the first episode in our third season, a big one to get you warmed up in January. And for our Antipodean subscribers, perhaps the opposite. Grab a stubby and let BVH cool those parts other podcasts struggle to reach. But first, a request. Well, a couple. One, send me a message with some advice. What do you want to hear us talk about? How we can improve the podcast? Too long? Too short? Why this, that and the other happened? We will do our best to fulfil your suggestions and answer your questions. Emails to talk at bloodyviolenthistory.com And two, please ask a friend to listen to our podcast and subscribe. Please get them to subscribe, that would be great. Now, on with the show. I met a traveller from an antique land who said, Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them, on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions red which yet survive. Stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. Ozymandias by Percy Bysshe Shelley Despot, to be despotic. It's hardly a term of affection or respect in the 21st century. It probably never has been. It has the ring of despair almost, an absolute ruler, a potentate holding all the power over his subjects, using whatever means necessary, secret police, death squads, cultish priests, to maintain his hold on the throne forever. And yes, it will generally be a him. Honourable mention should perhaps go to Queen Rana Valona, 1788-1861, whose ruthless rule of Madagascar put her in the club. But the men take the lion's share. A long list. Herod the Great, Chairman Mao, Mussolini, Muller Ishmael, Pol Pot, on and on and on. All the way back to Ramses II, the shattered visage, half sunk, in the desert sands. Ozymandias. Remarkably, despot was once an honorific, that is if you were a patriarch of the Eastern Orthodox Church. But today it is not a complimentary term. Despots have their palaces, their grand building projects, their psychotic families. They are opportunistic, often deploying crazed ideologies to secure and maintain their boot on the neck of the people the hand that mocked them, the heart that fed. Today we're going to take a look at some of these benighted characters, how they emerge, take hold of power, retain power, and eventually fall victim to hubris and downfall. Few die peacefully in old age, most overreach and are consumed in a bloody final act. Jamie, before we go into how these monsters arise, let us grind some ashes 
in the dirt. Yes, Tom, let's, let's get back to Ozymandias and Ramesses II. I remember as a teenager looking at his face in Cairo because his mummy had been unwrapped and thinking, you don't look well. <laughs> but I guess after 3,000 years, you're not looking great anyway. No, I, thought no. you, I thought he was like, what have you done to my mummy? <laughs> <laughs> he had terrible teeth, I do remember that. I think after 3,000 years... All of us are going to have terrible teeth. Yeah, and, and no, no, no amount of Californian facelifts is going to make him look good. But it's really the basis that despotism does not end well. Uh, he actually died from rheumatoid arthritis and the complications, and he was 90. He was never killed by the Red Sea closing in on him. So the idea that he gave chase in a chariot to Moses during the Exodus is a fabrication. Uh, the fact they actually found his body. <laughs> One of my favourite Bible stories from when I was small. Yes, but Ramses II certainly wasn't drowned. But we're starting here because it's to show you that despotism tends to end with shattered statues and a shattered end to the fantasy and, and on which many of the, these despotic rulers based their reigns. So it, it's not a bad place to start. And that Ozymandias is Shelley's poem, or snippet of a poem, based on Ramses II. And if you look at what happens to so many of these tyrants, you, you, you can just go through history and pluck out examples. Going back to the Bible, which is where we often like to start, you take King Ahab, the seventh king of the Israelites, and he offended God. He turned against Yahweh. The story recounts how he tried to escape from a battle in disguise, was killed by a stray arrow, and his blood was lapped by dogs. So that was the ending of one tyrant who offended God. Captain he Ahab, um, also of uh, Melville's uh, novel Moby Dick. Uh, I think the, the answer is, Jamie, that one shouldn't name one's child Ahab. That's probably true, and, and Captain Ahab was dragged to his death by Moby Dick after a harpoon line wrapped around his leg, so he was dragged to the depths. But, but King Ahab's wife, Jezebel, the famous, infamous Jezebel, she ended up being thrown from a window and being devoured by stray dogs. So it, it always seems to involve dogs lapping at blood or eating the entrails. <laughs> and, I, and I think she is probably one of the first recorded um, incidences of defenestration, wasn't she? That's true. Uh, she set a trend, Jezebel. She set a trend. But other tyrants end up differently. Some end hanging upside down from a filling station in Milan, like Mussolini. And his mistress. And, and his mistress. Anyone associated with them doesn't end up well, a bit like Ceausescu and his wife being gunned down in a courtyard when their reign came to an end. And even if you make a run for it, like Saddam Hussein, you end up being dug out of a dirty little hole and taken off to court, tried and hanged. Or, or dying in a dirty little hole when you put a bullet in your head like Adolf Hitler. So all the way through history you get these examples. You can even end up having your liver eaten like the first president of Equatorial Guinea. It was his nephew, Teodoro Obiang, who did that one. No mention of Chianti. <laughs> <laughs> no, indeed. And old Gaddafi, he came a cropper in a particularly unpleasant way. 
he certainly was. He, he was shot by his own pistol, apparently, his gold-plated pistol, but he, he was sodomised with a bayonet before then. Uh, that, again, is not unusual, humiliating a tyrant right at the end. Apparently, when uh, Richard III was killed at the Battle of Bosworth, his body was stripped, slung over a horse, and the examination of that skeleton that was dug up shows that he was actually sodomised with, with a dagger. So it, it's not unusual. We're really going for Richard III, aren't we, in these podcasts? I mean, his poor old standard bearer got his legs chopped off in the last episode. <laughs> yes, it didn't, didn't end well for Crookback Dick, that's for sure. Um, and what about more in the commercial world, the um, despots of business? Well, it is worth mentioning the, the sort of tyrants of, of commerce because quite often it's the same mindset. They come up through the, through that, the same ranks. They, they come up with that same sort of psychopathic zeal. Well, don't they say that it's the best place for psychopaths because to be a top businessman, you have to be slightly psychopathic? Indeed, maybe rather it's, that than ruling a country. Maybe it's easier to become head of a commercial enterprise than it is to become a head of a nation. So you take someone like Robert Maxwell, and as we know, his three hundred pound carcass was lifted from the sea by helicopter and a harness designed to pick up dead cattle or stranded cattle. So again, it doesn't end well there. An ignominious end. And what about um, once the despot has uh, been dispatched, it seems that um, their bodies can quite often let them down. <laughs> or the opposite. William I of England, William the Conqueror, when he died, his body became so bloated, they couldn't actually get him into his sarcophagus uh, back in Caen, at the Abbey in Caen. So when he was being put in, in there by, by the monks, he exploded. Someone pressed on his stomach and he exploded and the stench was so foul that the mourners ran from the abbey. So that was a, that was a bad one. And Henry VIII too, he apparently exploded in his coffin at Sion Abbey while his body was being carried back to St George's Chapel down in Windsor. And again, it's said that dogs lapped at the blood leaking from the coffin. So there's a reference back to King Ahab. It might just be a malicious rumour by someone who didn't like the Tudors or didn't like that particular king. I don't know. Dogs were often under the table, weren't they? So it's probably a good opportunity for, for, for a Maggie of the medieval period. M most of them just went for a bone, basically. Yes, you don't expect but they quite like lapping as well. <laughs> a little, little bit of blood. <laughs> They, they're not. They're not fussy. Did you? Did you know my my first ever job was working in a kibbutz in a chicken farm? But my first proper job, aged eighteen, was as a mortician's assistant in the Westminster mortuary. You did tell me about 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 bodies falling on the floor. No, no, no. We're not not allowed to mention that. <laughs> <laughs> Even after all these years, that's sealed under hundred hundred years rule. <laughs> a non non disclosure. Yes, and, and, it's actually and, a great, a very interesting job, I have to say. Yes, I never thought you'd fall further, but here we are. I know. <laughs> back, but, in, back in the morgue. Yes, but but often it doesn't start well, or it, it starts strangely. You go back to the October Revolution of 1917, when the provisional government was besieged by Bolshevik troops uh, in St. Petersburg, and members of the Duma... The, the Liberals and the Octoberists started to march towards the 
Winter Palace determined to help this government that was besieged. Uh, they were challenged by Bolshevik soldiers. And the leader of the Liberals said, uh, what are you going to do? Are you going to shoot us? And the reply came back, no, we shall spank you. <laughs> yes, yeah, so they, they're not even going to give them the a sort of glorious option, are they? They're just going to... Uh... No, so, so the Liberals slunk away, which amazes me for Liberal politicians. I thought they'd stay around to be spanked, but there you go. But... They like spanking each other, not being spanked <laughs> by others. But, um, uh, but, but Jamie, but... it's odd how these very small groups op- often get to the top. I mean, the Bolsheviks were nowhere, weren't they, in, in, at that time? And that's, they... that's right, and, and through manoeuvring and politicking and circumstance and because of the, the blowback from a failed war... Uh, and collapse on the Western Front and and military mutiny, you ended up with a revolutionary environment that aided these groups in the same way that no one expected Adolf Hitler uh, to rise as far as he did. Everyone thought they could be manipulated or cornered or controlled, and of course they couldn't. But with the Bolsheviks, you then get almost a century of uh, collectivization, of persecution, oppression, mass death, mass death, the gulags, and huge military parades in Red Square. And that fed on, that belief in in the sort of Soviet system or Russian imperialism and military might, you see with Putin today. And it's, in a way, a a complete front. Is the the despotism of those times with, I know, Take, for example, well, Stalin, I very much so, but one of the other leaders like Khrushchev compared to Putin. Was, was Khrushchev more sort of hemmed in by others within his organisation in a way that, say, Putin isn't today? I, I think that it was harder for him to manoeuvre because there was a Politburo and he was part of that Soviet system and the Soviet system aged around those leaders in a way. So it was basically not the survival of the fittest but the survival of the oldest who, 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 stay, who could stay the course, who could stay in power, which is why Gorbachev was seen by so many as a breath of fresh air when he first came in because he was the youngest member of the Politburo. He was a true believer on, of communism, though, wasn't he? he? He certainly was. And he thought he could certainly control things. And things like perestroika and glasnost got out of hand and it got beyond his p- control, which is why you then got a backlash and an attempt at a military coup. And to bring us up to date, are we going to see a dust-to-dust moment for Vladimir Putin? Well, at least Ozymandias, Ramesses II, actually had military victories. <laughs> he was the victor of the Battle of Kadesh, uh, whereas I don't think Ukraine is going to be a military victory for Putin. No, no but, who, but he, Putin has had successes previously, hasn't he? He's he has. had his Sudetenland moments. Well, he's, he's chosen his moments and he's chosen his targets, and he did so incrementally. This one was certainly overreach, which is what tends to happen with despots. They misjudge. No one is going to speak truth to power. They listen to their own inner voices and they get it wrong. So who knows? Maybe with Putin there'll be a a crushed, demolished statue one day lying there in its judo outfit, (laughs) lying there for all to survey and wonder. Jamie... There must be a recipe for making a monster. Well, we're not going to get into too much cod psychology here, Tom, but it's worth mentioning 
childhood, I think, at this stage, the starting point, what makes them into monsters? Do they have a drive? Do they have this urge and passion to get to the top and to dominate? So if, for example, you take Stalin and then Putin, you have to mention the fact that they started poor, they were not necessarily only children. Stalin was an only child. Putin had two brothers who predeceased him. So they very much grew up as the sort of man of the family. And it, there was poverty. There was certainly poverty. Stalin's father was a drunk who beat him. Putin was poor. There's the rat story, how he cornered a rat and learnt that the rat was going to fight back if cornered. That's part of the sort of Putin myth. And they were both quite... Uh, bullying themselves at school. They were. There's this story of Putin throwing chalk at other children. Stalin was very bright. Putin wasn't. Putin was very average. He was good at history, was bad at maths. Putin actually had a, a grandfather who was the chef of Stalin. So isn't it interesting? that It was that meant to be. It was meant to be, and now he uses a chef to run the Wagner organisation. My goodness, who would have thought... There we go, Gordon Ramsay, (laughs) dictator in the making. That's full circle. (laughs) It starts in the kitchen. Excellent. But but, uh, so so you see where that, perhaps, where that begins, that sort of bullying nature, that instinct. And and this idea of being in troubled times. We'll move on to the fact that many of these despots grew up in troubled times that they had to find an anchor. For Stalin, he was bright enough to get to a, a Jesuit school, won a scholarship there, was a bully, was constantly being locked in his room for, for bullying and reading underground literature, revolutionary literature. And so they, they, they grew up in these disturbed times. You look at Hitler growing up with the collapse of Weimar, you look at Stalin, the, the, the collapse of the imperial system in Russia. And the extraction of uh, a father from their early childhood. I mean, no father in their early childhood. I mean, uh, Hitler's father died, I think, when he was quite young, and the others... Yes, they're, 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 in, in a sense, they're looking for belonging. And, th- and that's another side of things, that many of these despots tend to be outsiders, either friendless or as they grow up. Because they're of a different nationality, a different background, they're overlooked, they're not seen as a threat. So you can take Napoleon, for example, born into Corsica... 1769? Yes, and and that was only a year after France had taken it off the hands of Genoa, and his parents had actually been involved in the resistance struggle. So... They wanted Corsican independence, and, and Napoleon was always quite into Corsican independence. When he was born, he was known as Napoleone, so you can see that Italian dimension. <laughs> yeah. but, but his father ended up with a job in the royal court in France, so, so Napoleon got in that way. He was very good at maths, so he, he ended up being sort of pushed towards artillery when he joined the military. Age 15, he actually had to make a living for the family. Uh, the father died, so Napoleon took responsibility. But as an outsider, as a, as a grubby little Corsican, he was sort of overlooked 
by the French establishment. And so he managed to find his niche. Do you think that's why he didn't actually mind uh, seeing so many of his French soldiers die in, in a form of subconscious revenge on France? Who, who, who knows? He certainly, he certainly wanted to go back to Corsica on one stage and, and defend Corsica against French rule. So there may be an element in that. But you know, then you take someone like Hitler, who was, of course, an Austrian, and he was overlooked. He was misunderstood, misjudged. Failed uh, painter. A failed painter. And, and, and people didn't take him seriously. They, they, in, the, in a way, they, they saw him as a sort of comic, operatic figure. And everyone from Hindenburg uh, to the industrialists to the political class, they never thought that this, this little rabble-rousing uh, Nazi with his brown shirts was, was ever going to pose a threat to the political establishment. Uh, and they thought they could control him, I see. They thought that he could control him. But, but like Napoleon taking advantage of the French Revolution to further himself, Hitler took advantage of the collapse of Weimar. Stalin took advantage of the October Revolution as he grew up and, and, and got himself into a position of influence, got himself into a position of power. And being a seasoned street thug was in a position. And he, of course, was an outsider again as a Georgian. So the political establishment never really saw him for what he was. And being an outsider, I think it gives you perhaps a greater degree of objectivity. An overview. An overview. Mm. And you can manipulate events better than those who are actually in the thick of it. One of the ways that you can become a successful despot is with a military background and as we've just been talking about Napoleon it was really his defense of the convention in 1795 that allowed him to become the commander of the army and then from there on he could become emperor and and, and everything else that happened. His starting point was really the, the, the route of the Brits from Toulon in 1793 when he managed to take a fort there and fire the guns at the Brits and the Spaniards and, and send their fleets packing. So that sort of put him in, in, in the frame. But his ruthlessness um, in 1795 to defend the convention by using grape shot on non-military citizens showed his sort of inner core of steel. Yes, it was called a whiff of grape shot. People have referred to it as that. Uh, and, and over 100 people died. So and he was firing at point-black range. So it showed his decisiveness. It showed how useful he was to the convention, to the government, to protecting the revolution. And he never looked back from there. And who would have thought that by 1804 he'd be lifting the crown of France from the hands of the Pope and putting it on his own head? So that's how it starts. A little artillery officer, how far they can get. So the element of military background that just what that gives them an edge in understanding how things work or how uh, power can be applied in the political sense. What is it? That well, helps? As, as Julius Caesar showed in crossing the Rubicon, it helps to have troops at your right hand, at your beck and call, because once you have the military on your side. Who else is there to stand against you? Of course, you need the opportunity, you need the political collapse to take advantage of, but to have the military there, uh, you, an armed body of men 
who who will answer your call, answer your command, it is extremely useful. And you can see that all the way through history. It didn't work with the coup in Turkey against Erdogan. And they had the military, but they failed. Because you need more than just that. You, you need it to be well organised. Just as the, the, the coup against Boris Yeltsin failed, you know, if you've got other things against you, if it's not working for you, you look at the attempt by the plotters against Adolf Hitler in 1944. They didn't manage to take the radio station. They didn't manage to coordinate. So... And there were rivalries among the plotters. So there are always those sort of things. There are always these unpredictable factors. Yeah, but and actually the Turkish coup, I mean, it was the same thing. They they had the military, which was really just a bunch of young kids who'd not really been in any kind of service apart from sat in a tank somewhere on a border. And although it was a much smaller organisation, Erdogan had the police and, and all, you know, secret service still on his side. And those guys knew how to apply pressure and, and um, but retrieve it, but it, the situation. Yes, but in terms of background, in terms of yeah. producing a, a totalitarian leader, an autocrat, the military is not a bad place to yeah, start, uh, along with the opportunity. Particularly in Africa. Africa's been full of it. I mean, you can take Idi Amin, for example, who started as a sergeant in the British Army and ended up as commander-in-chief of the Ugandan Armed Forces post-independence. And King of Scotland and everything else. Yes, within four years, he was, he was head of the army. And then, of course, he became dictator, and we know what happened after that. Yeah. And again, in Africa, you can see how, how in, in a way, despotism takes over, that there, there are no controls. So you, you take someone like Mobutu in Zaire, he took advantage of the situation because you had the collapse of the Lumumba government. You had Mobutu as a military man coming forward. He was perfect. He looked as a stable leader, someone who could restore order, someone who could overcome tribal issues, could could maintain the country in its sort of pro-Western stance. Well, because he'd had some, some training and knew about discipline and things he like that. He knew, uh, and he but, had both tribal and military backing. So there yeah. he was. Little did anyone know that by 1966 he would be executing uh, one of his rivals, hanging him in front of a crowd of 50,000 in a stadium, that by 68 he'd be castrating and hacking to pieces another rival. By 1990, he'd send in his paramilitaries, the Owls, to kill a bunch of students who were protesting against him. So you, you can see this, this steady erosion of rights as a, a dictator, an autocrat, gets into his stride, and, and there is nothing stopping them. At the outset, these uh, when they're trying to gain popularity both with um, uh, the sort of governmental circles and also the people, is that having having been a soldier gives them kudos, does it? I mean, you know, if you're seen to have been someone who's fought for your country... Certainly if you've been at the start of the liberation struggle or, or you've been there at the end of colonialism, you're, you're sitting up on a on a pedestal because you are the survivor of that period you've come through and you can take it you've taken over so for example the ANC ends up as 
the sole party in power. And even though you can't necessarily call it despotic, you can certainly say it controls the political dialogue. And you can see how despotism can creep in. And certainly in all those other countries in, in Africa, exactly the same thing has happened. And you start with a military dictatorship and then you have clan, family, tribe taking over and it becomes an ongoing despotism. So let's step over the pond to the west western side of the Atlantic and South America. Paraguay, Jamie. Paraguay is an interesting one because you get someone like Alfredo Stroessner who tried several coup attempts before he succeeded. And once he took over, he was actually the, the son of a Bavarian brewer or at least an accountant who worked in a Bavarian brewery. And Stroessner loved all the sort of SS regalia. There, there was a very strong... Had he been in the SS or something? Uh, no, but because of that background, because there were a lot of exiles, German exiles, going to Paraguay, certainly after the war, he, he took that lead in a way. And from that military position, he came in, he was the strong man, he had his economic projects. I mean, he displaced 150,000 people just building one of his dams. A lot of these people who come in as despots, whether they're military or not, they, they tend to have this great concept of, uh, and wanting to link their names to development, to the economic development. It's no different to Stalin and collectivization. this idea of... of pushing their nations forward through industrialization and development. And I think Franco built lots of dams in Spain, didn't he, to provide water for... Exactly, and it's in a sense a populist move, but it's also linking their names to the development of their nations. So it's something they, they want to do, and they want to often not only have their names linked to it, they want their family to go on and, and rule after them to, to keep their reputation alive. It didn't quite work out for Stroessner because he ended up being overthrown by his second in command, partly because he was pushing his sons to take over and one was gay and the other was a cocaine addict. And that didn't go down well with the leadership of Paraguay, with the, 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 the military hierarchs in Paraguay. All right. And so others in, in South, South America, obviously Argentina had um, Perón and Eva Perón. Yes, and they don't started... Don't cry for me, Argentina. <laughs> Please don't sing, Tom. <laughs> but, but, but they started with this sort of populist appeal, this, this zeal. Uh, quite often, autocrats who come in, they, 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 they try to be reformist. They start to be reformist. It goes horribly wrong, and you can see that with Assad, for example, uh, in Syria. They try to be reformist, then it blows up in their face, and then they double down and become far worse, even than their, their parents or what came before. But you can see that with uh, Perón in Argentina. You, 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 of course, have Pinochet in Chile. All these people try and set up political movements. I mean, Stroessner's political party is still in office today, even though he's long gone. So it can survive. It can continue into the decades ahead. It's the bind of democracy that they really can't come to terms with, that 
um, you've got to be able to allow someone else to be elected and take over. They, they just can't stomach that. Bear it. And quite often the scars they leave behind are huge. You look at Franco's... Survive it. Yes, you, you, you look at Franco's Spain. And again, he was an opportunist. He had been exiled essentially to take over command and Canaries. It didn't quite work out for him. He'd he was, been a hero, really. He, he was a military prodigy. He'd done extremely well in North Africa. So when he came in, he had the loyalty of the military around him. He didn't like the fact that the royals had been overthrown. He hated the leftism of, of Spain, and he was going to do something about it. And given how bloody the Spanish Civil War was, given he was backed by the Nazis and the Condor Legion and the, the outside help from both Muslims. fascist Italy and, and Germany. He had a lot of backers, and having outside help is, is quite a useful start. And again, the outside world, if you want outside help, being military is a good starting point. It, it gives you contacts. It gives people confidence to back you because they know that you're the, the, the iron horseman who's going to bring order, who's going to bring stability and impose your rule. When despots get their feet under the table, sometimes they turn it into a family business. Uh, a, a really good example of this, of, of course, is uh, North Korea, where you had the originally Kim Il-sung, the great leader, handing on his power to his son Kim Jong-il, dear leader, and then handing on to his son, Kim Jong-un, great successor. How about that? That's the way Who it goes. Who are we going to hand this podcast on to? <laughs> <laughs> and what are we going to call them? A lesser leader. <laughs> but, but when you look at the current leader, his brother, of course, was murdered with nerve agent. That brother had already fallen out of favour before he was murdered because he never took over... I think he, because he had gone to Disney World in Japan or something using a Chinese passport. So it all got terribly complicated and embarrassed the North Koreans. Yeah, he hadn't molested Minnie Mouse. Anyway, so, so that all went terribly wrong for him. But it's fascinating to see how many of these leaders, when they take power, they want to attach themselves to the creation myth of their nation. Ho Chi Minh, of course, means bright spirit or free will. Or you take Pol Pot, meaning the first Cambodian. So, so when you get someone like Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge, they wanted to turn Cambodia back to year zero. So they started year zero. And no amount of previous Cambodian history was allowed into their culture. And naturally it led to the extermination of two million people uh, between a quarter and a third of the country because they wanted to extinguish the bourgeoisie. They wanted a complete revolutionary nation. So it's that combination of ideology, that belief in national exceptionalism and the belief that they are the, the, not just the rulers but the, the embodiment of everything that their nation stands for that, that turns these autocrats into complete demons. So the nation really can't function or exist without them? That, that's what they believe. But then it gets handed on to the son who tries to uh, continue that 
heritage and it can go terribly badly wrong. E e even the Roman emperors that went down the family line, you start with Augustus, who some believe was quite enlightened, but by the time you go through Tiberius and then end up with Caligula, you end up with a mad despotic tyrant. Although he started off, well, his nickname of the soldiers, I think, was Little Boots or something. Uh, yes, little, I, little that, that was when he was a child. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so, so when you get these, these leaders who have grown up being cosseted uh, in their countries, uh, and we'll talk about it later, I mean, you look at um, Marcos, for example, it's extraordinary that Marcos' son, Bong Bong, is now in charge as president in spite of the behaviour of President Marcos's father. And all the money that went missing. Exactly. Then, of course, you get Bashir al-Assad in Syria, who started as a dentist. He, he never thought he was going to take over the reins of power, but his brother had died, uh, and he was brought back, went through a bit of military training, and has ended up just as unpleasant as his father. Who... Although I remember when they first um, mentioned him, when he first turned up, um, they saw him as a bit of a hope, and he had that wife who was very attractive and, and so on. And... Well, well, this is the thing about people coming in, uh, you know, sons coming in and being seen as reformers and then seeing that reform doesn't work and clamping down even uh, more extremely than their, than their, than their father. The original Assad was notorious for the Hamam massacre and killing distance and killing Shia. And this one has been no, no better uh, and has plunged his country into civil war and has been bailed out by another despot, Putin. So, and so it goes. And sometimes you get the situation where the succession goes sideways. So we've had um, Fidel Castro, his revolution in the late 50s, um, and he died only a few years ago, and passed it across to his brother. Yes, it just becomes a sort of bureaucratic shoe-in, really. <laughs> but, but family ties... From one ancient to another. Yes, and whether it's a brother, as, as, as long as it stays within the clan, whether it's in, in Cuba or in Africa, it stays within the family or the clan, because no-one wants to lose office, because if they lose office, they'll lose access to the means of making money. So no one ever wants to give up power, which is why you get coup attempts, because that's the only way to get into a position where you can enrich yourself and put billions into your uh, bank account and your family's trust fund. So going back to Mobutu, he's believed to have ended up with about £2 billion in his bank account. Castro was quite unusual, wasn't he? Because he he had this sort of he he was supposedly against the cult of personality and and all that side of things and 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 perhaps enrichment and so on. But in a way, it made him more of a cult than any of the other leaders. He became more famous for not wanting it. But they link themselves to some kind of ideology, and 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 often it again it's being father of the nation or it's linking yourself to a political movement like Saddam Hussein or Assad with the Ba'athist movement. It, 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 it's that tradition. Yeah, Castro with the, uh, co with, with, with the communists. Yes. Communism. Com I mean, it wasn't, he wasn't a communist at the beginning. Well, you're, you're never going to ascribe to an ideology that believes in a multi-party system, for example. You're always going to go for one, whether it's fascist or communist, that believes in one leader, one party, one nation. And to finish off this section, 
back to our corporate despot, Robert Maxwell. Well, you mentioned outsiders, Tom, and I just had to get in how Robert Maxwell was a typical example of an outsider being Czech and Jewish and coming from an incredibly poor background where he had to share shoes with his siblings. But when he joined the British Army, and again, the war upheaval gave him an opportunity to advance. And because he spoke many languages, he was very useful to the, the British military, he was sent to Berlin at the end of the war. But one thing he noticed as an outsider was that British officers often walked around with dogs. So he thought, I must have a dog. The only place he could find a dog, because most dogs had been eaten in Berlin in the closing uh, days of the war, was the breeder of German shepherds, of Alsatian dogs. So he acquired an Alsatian called Barry, which was the same breed line as Hitler's Blondie. So the irony of a Czech Jew whose family had been killed by the Nazis acquiring the same breed as Adolf Hitler, the same pedigree as Adolf Hitler's dog Blondie and Bella, can't be uh, overstated. It's quite extraordinary. But that's what outsiders do. They, they plug in to the system. Although they're outsiders, they plug in and they try and disguise themselves and become part of the establishment. Because they feel they're not accepted. Because they feel they're not accepted. And it's the only way to get on. It's like Napoleon changing his name. Right, let's move on to how our despot holds on to power, holding power. There's a theme of creation and exceptionalism uh, for the country. We, we've talked a little bit about some of these, these subjects in other podcasts, particularly episode 43, Death Squads, um, and episode 54 on Secret Police. And if you want a little, uh, a more light-hearted run through tyrants and their lack of taste, check out episode 22. Anyway, the leaders link to the creation of a nation. Jamie, tell us a little bit about titles. Well, we've already mentioned so many of the titles and the fact that so many of them want to start at the beginning at year zero and link themselves to the make themselves the embodiment of the nation and so a lot of them return their countries to their perception of what their country is about you you take someone like Mobutu and he tried to Africanize Zaire whether it was changing the name or changing the garb he wouldn't allow anyone to wear suits they had to wear African outfits and you you've probably seen images of him in his leopard skin hat and his fly whisk that was a deliberate attempt to africanize his country and and rub out the the sort of western influences just as mao introduced really the mao suit the 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 idea of of making china chinese and linking it to this idea that everyone was essentially the same, that the individual didn't count. It was the nation, the party that mattered. A uniform. A uniform. For a uniform state and a uniform ideology. And those ideologies, time and again, the usual suspects crop up, communism and fascism and nationalism. 
they're, they're all linked. They're all absolutely linked because once you create or once you have an ideology that has an external threat or an internal threat, it, it legitimizes having oppressive groups within the secret police and death squads the, the the political prisoners sending people to the gulag sending people to prison executing them on a whim these are all legitimized by the odd ideology and the idea that uh, these people the people who oppose them are enemies of the state enemies of the people i wonder how what the tally is uh, so far on deaths from communism and fascism because Today, it seems that fascism is the rudest word you can throw around. I mean, if you call someone a communist, sometimes they actually take it as a point of honour. And there are still communists around who think it's perfectly normal. I mean, there are people interviewed on the BBC who are communists. They're never introduced as communists, but they are members of the Communist Party, uh, people who are linked to the COVID uh, situation, of course. So that's not a dirty word, and yet communism under its oppressive rule, certainly under the Soviet Union, and certainly under Stalin, killed 20, 30 million people. So our despot has clothed himself in an ideology and some national identity. How does he um, manipulate the creation of external and internal threats to his benefit? We've already mentioned in, in our podcast on traitors this situation in which the despot can say, if you're a minority, if you're outside the system, if you don't believe in what we do, whether you're Jewish or a Jehovah's Witness, you are a traitor. You're a traitor to the cause, you're a traitor to the party, and therefore we can destroy you. And you're undermining things from the inside, rotting the inside of the apple. Yes, and it doesn't need to be communist. You look at Ukraine today, it is plainly a threat in Putin's mind. Having a free, sovereign, independent Ukraine that's democratic and capitalist is something that Russia doesn't want or Putin doesn't want. And weirdly, of course, for him, it's an, he, he envisages it as an internal threat, whereas obviously for the Ukrainians, their existential fight is an external one. They're fighting an external enemy. They certainly are. But, but Putin sees this, this flank of, of Russia, this flank of his imagined empire, as being threatening. Because if you're sitting on a sclerotic, moribund economy and political system, there's nothing worse than having a successful nation just next door to you. And, of course, these tyrants love having a rant against the rules-based system, Western capitalism and democracy. Suspicion is what they feed on uh, because they're paranoid by nature. So whether it's Hitler or Stalin or Putin, they will find an external threat and they will blame anything and everything on that external threat as well. And, I mean, if there was democracy, there would be elections and that would be the end of them. C completely. But it's always useful for these tyrants, these despots, to look at what they see as an internal threat and say that they're linked. Imagine they're linked to an external threat. So it's, it's always, for example, in, in the mind of Hitler, it's always an international conspiracy. It's always international Zionism, for example, that is the threat to Nazi Germany. So however hard the people suffer, they're suffering to protect the the motherland, the, 
the fatherland. And it makes it easier for that despot to be the embodiment, not only of the creation of that nation, but the, the saviour of that nation, the person who can stand up to the external threat. So Stalin cloaked himself, clothed himself in this idea of the saviour of the nation, even though he, like Hitler, was pretty incompetent. He had purged his generals and he was on the back foot. Uh, these despots seem to be quite uh, good, quite nifty at um, wielding the propaganda magic wand. That's the next thing. Propaganda is key to their survival, key to their positioning themselves in the in the firmament of leadership. So they have to stay there and they have to maintain some kind of image uh, amongst the population. You look at Triumph of the Will, the Nazi propaganda film by Leni Riefenstahl in 1935, you can see the images of Hitler coming down from the sky. He's replaced God in a way, and he became this godlike figure. So if you look at the way the Nazis projected Hitler, he was the salvation. And it's easier to do when the leader, the despot, comes in after a period of instability, after a period when everyone saw their savings collapse, everyone saw the economy collapse, everyone saw or perceived that Germany was humiliated and had surrendered prematurely and unnecessarily. So if you have a despot coming in with a message that strikes a chord, then that leader's in a much stronger position. And Goebbels invented this commercial packaging, if you like, of the Nazi political story. And he was a true believer. He was a true believer, and he was very good at, at branding the, 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 the merchandise, branding that image of, of the Nazis. And then if you are a successful despot, um, unlike, say, Hitler, who lost his life, obviously, at the end of the war, but, say, Augustus, Emperor Augustus, the Romans, you keep uh, the populace ticking over with bread and circuses. You you have to give them what they want. And, and bread and circuses was really what, what the Roman population wanted. We, we did a podcast on gladiators. So, you know, that was one of the things. I mean, games were important. So, that's why you build a Colosseum and it feeds into not just the propaganda but the massive building projects that also come along. And you look at the plans that Albert Speer had, the, the, the rallies and the marches at Nuremberg or the Soviet rallies on Red Square. But the problem is ultimately those leaders, those autocrats, start believing their propaganda and their publicity and this is the problem. They overreach. And those marches on Red Square or Nuremberg, those rallies end up in war because the perceived threat, the external threat, becomes all-embracing. Meeting that external threat or creating that external threat and then going to war against it is, in the eyes of the dictator, the best way of, of staying in power. And uh, they like to build large objects. You've mentioned the Nuremberg rallies, but also the enormous proposed Reichstag that um, Hitler was going to have built for him. Exactly. Palaces and monuments 
whether it's in Rome by the Caesars or by Mussolini, that hideous edifice that Mussolini put up in the middle of Rome. These are what despots do because it's, it's, a, it's an image of permanence. We've talked about Ramesses II and the statuary of the pharaohs. You, you look at what the Caesars have done, you, you look at the, the palaces of the Moroccan sultan, Moulay Ishmael, you look at the pyramids in Egypt, for example, it, it's, it, it gives them a, a, a place in time, a place in history. So, wasn't it recorded on perhaps Augustus's deathbed that he said he found Rome made of brick and left it made of marble? Well it, it, well, it gives you eternity, it gives you immortality, and that's really what so many of these these leaders want. They, they want immortality. What about the um, Lenin's tomb? How does that fit into this sort of monument? It, it fits into the, the creation myth of the Soviet Union. So if you want legitimacy as a, as a Soviet leader, to stand on that mausoleum is no bad thing because it links you to the October Revolution that links you to the earliest days of Bolshevism. So that's where they get legitimacy from. You're not going to get your legitimacy from being voted in unless it's sham elections like Putin later on. But Lenin is, is key to that, certainly key to the, the, the existence of the Politburo, existence of the Soviet Despots aren't the only people who have grand designs. I mean, you can see in our own country and throughout Europe magnificent cathedrals. But, but they, of course, were built at a time of, of absolute rule. If you have kings and queens who believe in divine right, believe they're touched by God or put in position by God, and they are sponsoring the church and the church makes money for them, eventually... Uh, a despot or a king can get jealous of that money and, and take it over, as Henry VIII did, obviously, with the, with the church, uh, the Catholic Church, the Church of Rome in England. But uh, the, the church had enough money anyway to build those cathedrals and was going, but they certainly had to show loyalty to the crown. Uh, and so back to more modern times, um, an edifice can also be an event in so much as uh, something like the May Day Parade. Yes, we, we've spoken about those and the, the rallies. That's really part of the propaganda as well. It's this fusion of the edifice, such as the stand at Nuremberg, and the rally and the event itself. So it goes together. The, the whole thing fuses really into, into a whole and it makes it easier to sell. It provides the dramatic backdrop. The requirement of a despot to stay in power is that he has to have a group of people around him who are going to protect him, protect his person and are very loyal, uh, bodyguards, praetorians. You certainly need bodyguards, uh, not only to, to protect the person of the despot or the Caesar, but, but also to project power. Quite often they become the elite forces as well if you're going to war. So the Praetorian Guard, uh, set up by Augustus Caesar, there, there were probably about 4,000 there and they, they grew in number. The immortals, uh, basically the Praetorians of uh, the Persian 
leaders, such as Xerxes. There were about 10,000 there, and they were rated from those who had gold spears, gold apple pommels on their spears, to those who had silver ones. But they were extremely important. You saw them in action in Thermopylae, for example, in the invasion by Xerxes of Greece. So they, they do become a spearhead, not just a bodyguard. Exactly the same thing happened with... It the... is, isn't it sort of the other way around? I mean, they show their mettle by being the best soldiers, and then the emperor surrounds himself with the best people, and then they become flabby later on, is that...? Uh, it can go either way, I suppose. But, but uh, the Janissaries were hand-picked and went through rigorous military training. They were the offspring of... Christians, captured Christian slaves. So they were retrained, brutalised, and became the shock troops of the Ottoman Empire. And because they had no sort of family ties to anyone else in the Ottoman Empire, they would be totally loyal. That had a lot to do with it. They, they owed their allegiance to the Sultan, although Mahmud II, the, the Sultan, the Ottoman Sultan in the 19th century, ended up slaughtering them because he saw them as a potential power base, as, as rivals, as people who could undermine his position. So you always got these sort of ructions in the same way that the Praetorians killed Caligula. So you, you never quite knew. As if you had people close to the centre of power, they could always usurp that power. And the ultimate bodyguard um, was um, Gaddafi's, we think. <laughs> yes, what were they called? They were called the, they were called the revolutionary, revolutionary nuns. And they looked great, I have to say. They were, they were, they were very fine-looking. They, they, they disappeared pretty quickly when Gaddafi was killed. No one knows what happened to them. But I, but I think that I they, hope they're employed by someone. <laughs> <laughs> but, but they, they, they were certainly uh, Amazonian. They were certainly Amazonian. They were, they were part of that projection of image. Uh, so, as we said, they, they were. The Praetorians, the bodyguards of these people, were part of that, part of that setup. Part I mean, of the propaganda. The, they might have been very effective. I mean, we know that um, the Israeli military and Mossad um, employ men and women on a fairly equal basis, don't they? And the Israeli uh, women are uh, very effective fighters and very attractive. I have to say. <laughs> Having been body searched by one of them, I can testify to it. Are you sure it was a woman, Jamie? I am absolutely <laughs> certain. Fair enough. <laughs> well, then, lastly, um, in this section, secret police and oppression and death squads. Secret police and death squads are critical to the survival of the despot, at least initially. And any country, any nation that has... Uh, a one-party state that has an ideology behind it tends to have secret police to enforce that, it has the paranoia behind it that ensures that secret police are necessary. And communism was certainly uh, no stranger to using secret police. We all know about the KGB, we all know about the Stasi in East Germany. And they were very rigorous, very brutal. And the security forces in Russia are still extremely brutal. Uh, that is what is expected of them. So th that all leads back to Lenin's observations of the destruction of the Paris Commune in uh, 1871. He learned the lesson that 
to achieve your end, you've got to be exceedingly brutal, uh, not let any sort of anybody get away with anything, and therefore you need your secret police and death squads to apply that particular part of the process. You certainly have to be very rigorous in the application of force and extremism, and there has to be an element of fear in society that if anyone steps out of line, they're going to be crushed. You look at the Gestapo in Nazi Germany. You look at the way that these institutions have come to power. If those regimes came to power in a bloody fashion that evolved through street fighting, for example, the SS being used to murder the SA under Ernst Röhm in in Nazi Germany, if you had Felix Szczesinski leading the Cheka and enforcing uh, suppression of rivals and uh, anti-Soviet forces during the early years of the Russian Revolution, then you're going to have that that blood spilt. Then you're going to have them cutting their teeth on early violence and ensuring that it becomes part of the regime, part of the repertoire of the despot. From James Jackson's Siege of Malta epic, Blood Rock. The vice-regent of God on Earth looked out upon the still and glittering waters of the Golden Horn and saw that it was good. For he was Suleiman the Magnificent, Sultan of the Ottoman Empire, King of Kings, Lord of the Lords of the World, Emperor of the East and West, Possessor of Men's Necks. And before him lay his navy, a fleet of some two hundred ships, a vast armada ready to sail at his bidding, to seize and conquer in his name. By land and sea, his was the greatest military power, the furthest flung empire the world had ever seen. From the gates of Vienna to the gardens of Babylon, from the port of Aden to the city of Budapest, his writ and influence were all. But he was not done yet. It was late March 1565, an auspicious time to launch invasion and soak the earth in Christian blood. He felt the incisor bite of gout feeding on his leg. Aged 71, he was falling prey to the vicissitudes of fate and the frailties of humankind. Pain could make a man cry out, could make a man cruel. Nothing, however, would disturb the aura of imperial majesty, at least not in public. The rages could wait for the inner courtyards, the gem-encrusted chambers, the hidden rose gardens and scented pathways of the Grand Seraglio Palace. Here he was, the living embodiment of divine authority, and here he was, a ruler aloof on his dais, resplendent in silk robes and ermine-trimmed gown, a jewelled scimitar at his side, a turban with diamond clasp and aigrette of peacock feathers poised on his head. All who surveyed him would tremble. He was the giver of life and bringer of death. His bead-black eyes flickered to watch the rich and thronging multitude of his court. They were thousands strong, a kaleidoscope of magnificent hues. There were the green silks of his ministers and viziers, the blue of the sheikhs, the gold and scarlet of the ambassadors, the white of the muftis. Each had his role, knew his place. Close by was the bejeweled presence of the Grand Vizier and his retinue. Near also was the chief black eunuch, 
the Kisla agar, a bloated grotesque in flower-patterned silks and tall sugar-loaf headdress. Around them were others, the chief armourer, the chief huntsman, the chief astronomer, the chief keeper of the hummingbirds, the custodian of the heron plume, the masters of the keys, the stirrup, the turbans, the perfumes, rival factions and fawning alliances, bound up and bedecked in sable and precious stones, Constantinople's finest. They were come to pay homage to their sultan, to greet, preen, jostle and flaunt. They were come to observe the vast Turkish fleet depart for war. All this holding on to power, these methods, end up leading to a variety of absolute horror stories. Yes, it's the synthesis of autocracy, really. It's, it's the distillation of all the awfulness of autocracy and the lack of the rule of law or equality before the law or democracy or freedom of speech. Any kind of appeal. Yes, it, it tends to end up in horror. You can go back to Spain and the Trastamara family who came into power in 1369. They had a litany of terrible kings from that family. The Enrique II had this policy of just disemboweling knights or burning them alive. And this was when there was a a policy that you weren't allowed to touch knights, you weren't allowed to kill knights unless it was sort of in an honourable fashion or it was on the battlefield. These kings completely ignored it. And when you look at the sort of evidence given by priests at the time and monks observing what was going on, they all said the, the, these kings have absolutely no sort of decency at all. They're, they're beyond the pale. And, and again, once you have religion involved, once you have the Inquisition and the Catholic Church behind all these things, then you start getting even greater uh, autocracy, even greater despotism, and the hunting down of heretics and the, the burning of heretics from Spain to the Italy and up to the Low Countries. And, and of course, over in the East, you've got the Ottoman Empire. You have the Ottoman Empire. And once again, you see this paranoia creeping in at every level to the extent that everyone starts killing their own killing their rivals every Ottoman sultan tend to kill the offspring of, of their predecessor, their, their, their rival siblings for example uh, Suleiman the Magnificent even had his son, his favourite son uh, killed uh, they always had mutes going around bowstrings and strangling people so there, there was always evidence of that we've already mentioned that the, the czars who were killing their sons whether it was Peter the Great or Ivan the Terrible this, this became uh, common practice because no one was there to, to stop them and bringing it to, into slightly more modern times and the collapse of the Soviet Union, Kazakhstan. Again, you're getting these tyrants or these despots coming in, taking over, uh, putting up monuments to themselves. We've already mentioned uh, statues painted in gold that rotate to reflect the sun. You're getting this all... Is the sun the... coming out of something at the back? <laughs> One might... Well, they probably think it is. But... And, of course, you're getting referenda that say they've got 98% popularity. We've heard that somewhere, haven't we? 
Um, <laughs> it's going on at this very moment, I think. There you go. So, so at every level, there's propaganda, there's monuments, there's, there's secret police, there are murders going on, there are people being thrown out of windows, people being strangled. It, it, it's gone all the way through history, and that is despotism for you. That's part of holding on to office. Right, our penultimate section, hubris and downfall. Before the downfall, the crafty despot often has one or two final tricks up his sleeve. They often do. If you look at Mao, I mean, he, he never suffered a downfall, but he came up his with... His reputation that, did. His reputation certainly did. And, and, and things like his long march, people go, it wasn't a long march. He didn't have very many people with all of that sort of thing. But... He was crafty. He launched his 100 Flowers campaign in the mid-1950s and said, people should start criticising the party. Take a pop at us. We're, we're big enough we to take We want feedback. It. We want feedback. <laughs> and as soon as people put their, yeah. their, their, their heads above the parapet, as, as soon as... The, My name's James Jackson. I think you're crap. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So as, as soon as the flowers rose up, he chopped the heads off. I mean, nice he, he, he crushed the opposition. Uh, and again, it's, it's often this thing of the, 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 the people who start some sort of liberating campaign or liberalising campaign, they, they, they think twice about it and they think this is getting out of control. We have to crush it. So, so then the sledgehammer comes down. And, but, but at the time, it seems like a good idea. But I suspect that Mao just thought, right, I'll just identify my enemies. It makes it easier. So it, it was a clever move. So we have a rapid gallop then to hubris, hubristic moments and the downfall of our despot. I think hubristic moments really come when, when the despot overreaches, and that can be internally or externally. That, that can be when they overreach, when the people around them start to fear. You can see with the death of Stalin that no one wanted to go and help him. No one knew what to do. No one knew. It's, it's not in the rule book, and this is the problem with despots. Because there's no ordered moving on because there's no understanding of who's going to take power because you have people and rival factions wanting to take over it's not going to be happy it's going to be pretty messy and so quite often that despot as you've seen in South America for example they are simply replaced by another hard man by another military guy and this goes back to the original story. King Ag Agamemnon, returning from the Trojan-Greek War, is murdered by his wife Clytemnestra in a hubristic uh, Greek tragedy. Um, and possibly, not surprisingly, seeing as on the way to, to uh, defeat Troy ten years previous, or, or more than ten years previous, he'd um, been told by his soothsayer uh, that to get the right winds and fate to move in his direction, he had to sacrifice his own daughter, which he duly did. So uh, I think Clytemnestra had a reason, a good reason, although I think she had a lover in the cupboard at the same time. But, it's, well. not, but it's not a bad sort of insight into human nature, into the human condition. Everything comes around. And, and, and certainly uh, amongst power elites, you're always going to get 
factionalism, rivalry, uh, a, a, an attempt to get catch the eye and the favour of the leader. And even amongst kings and queens of England, I mean, you, you couldn't always call them tyrants because quite often they were enlightened and ruled well, but so many of them died uh, in bad circumstances. So you get Richard II being starved to death in Pontefract Castle. You had Edward II apparently dying with a red-hot poker up his backside in Berkeley Castle. You had Mary, Queen of Scots, being beheaded in Fotheringay Castle. You had Henry VI uh, mysteriously dying in the Tower of London, uh, probably murdered. You had the sons of Edward IV disappearing, probably murdered in the Tower of London. So, so murder and intrigue and bad endings always accompany despots, and, and so often it doesn't end well. And not only is it just internal politics, it's that external thing. The fact that if they go to war and it goes bad, then everything they stood for, the prestige they wanted for their nation, the success and triumph they wanted for their nation and for themselves, they're inextricably linked to that failure. And so it blows up in their face. And, and this is, I suspect, what's going to happen to Vladimir Putin. You know, the failure in Ukraine is his failure. And it's a personal failure. And people won't forget that. Bearing in mind, we're recording this in September, end of September 2022. And it will be released early 2023. So who knows? Maybe he's already gone. Watch this space. All right, Jamie, before we um, jump into our postscript, a final part, perhaps this is an oxymoron, the enlightened despot. Is it just that sometimes, if they're sort of successful, history gets written in a way that makes them come out smelling of roses, um, when in fact uh, history shouldn't probably be forgiving them? Well, I suppose history is a long time ago, so it can obscure, it can soften the edges of, of a reputation. It, it's fascinating to look back and think Augustus Caesar, he is seen as enlightened, that he brought stability, and he certainly advanced the cause of Rome and turned it into a mighty empire, a huge empire. And he did extremely well, so people view him as as enlightened and compared to his the, the 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 later generations he was pretty enlightened he wasn't as despotic as a nero or as a caligula of his time yeah of his time at the same time of course you got herod the great and according to the bible he ordered the killing of the firstborn so he was a despot but he he was also called the great and of course he had his monuments he had his hanging gardens and palaces at Masada and his palace at Herodium. He was a great leader, but he was also a servant of Rome. He was also someone who oppressed, suppressed the opposition, those who objected to Roman domination. So was he a despot? Was he enlightened? It's, it's, it's very difficult to read. And Caesar, of course, you know, the name Caesar, Tsar and all those other comes from a man who who was essentially a despot, but he, he died in a blaze of glory before his despotism became too 
appalling. And maybe we shouldn't apply today's standards or what we believe is right to the standards of yesteryear. It's very easy to see things through a straw or to see things through a prism uh, of our own values today. Uh, liberal democracy is a, is a very recent phenomenon. Yeah, and you look at uh, Singapore's Lee Kuan Yew. Um, some people would say he was not a despot, but I mean he was very strict. I just like the fact that he went to the uh, London School of Economics to to learn uh, what was going on there, went back to Singapore and did exactly the opposite and made it a huge success. There you go. Never listen to academics who have no experience of real life. <laughs> it's like economists, they always get it wrong. What's the definition of waste, Jamie? You tell me. It's a bus full of economists going over a cliff with one empty seat. <laughs> That's not a bad one, actually. Thank you. And it's pretty true. Then there's Napoleon. We in Britain might view him as a tyrant. Many in Europe might view him as a tyrant. And yet, there he is with his tomb in Les Invalides. He's held up as the great saviour of France. And yet he butchered hundreds of thousands of his own troops in, in crazed expeditions into Russia and ended up being defeated on the, on the fields of Waterloo. So was he a despot? Was he a tyrant? He certainly crowned himself. He left his own troops behind in Egypt and scarpered back to France to crown himself emperor. But he, at the same time, he produced the Code Napoleon, he signed a concordat with the papacy to regulate the relations with the Catholic Church. He wasn't the, the sort of butcher that the revolutionary butchers of, the, of the, the terror were during the French Revolution. So he was more enlightened than that. And one can't deny that he was a great general. And he had all those trees planted along the road so that ladies wouldn't get hot in their carriages. And so that Germans could march in the shade. <laughs> yeah he, well, he wasn't thinking that far ahead was he and nowadays of course they cut those trees down because they're so close to the edge of the roads that uh, when your car spins out of control it almost invariably hits the plane tree and they have real problems with people being killed so it's a bit of a shame but I went on the Canal du Midi which is also uh, framed with plane trees and I have to say it was wonderful because of the shade well, you can't say we don't give motoring tips or barge holiday tips on this podcast. I think you'd be safe from driving in a barge. <laughs> I would be despotic. OK, P.S. Postscript, modern tyranny. Jamie, what is your postscript? Well, it's another bugbear of mine, actually, Tom, and it's about cancel culture and wokeism, because I think this is the modern tyranny. You don't need despots. You don't need rulers on thrones. You just need the blob. You just need people who are ill-informed, uneducated, opinionated, and want to close down conversation and debate. People who today want to close down conversation tomorrow will be banning books, then they'll be burning books, and the day after that, they'll be burning bodies. Well, that Ray Bradbury book, um, Fahrenheit 451, takes on that brilliantly. Everybody's given one book to learn, and that's how, you know, once they've burnt all the books, that's how literature 
remains in some sort of form. Well, at least there's some sort of pushback. And I'm planning to launch my board game called Whack-A-Woke. You know, you know the game Whack-A-Mole? Well, this is Whack-A-Woke, where you have to hit them with something awful before they reach the safe zone. So you basically hit them things with that will outrage or offend them. Uh, on their way to their safe zone. So, oh dear. So the, self-immolation. Yeah, so you, so you remove their family trust fund, for example, or you force them to think for themselves, or you force them to drink a litre of milk as they're protesting outside a dairy uh, against the exploitation of cows. You know, those sorts of things. But I think it will really take off, and it's important. It's part of the pushback. Yes, so uh, uh, join the Free Speech Union, if you haven't already, and, Jamie, are, are, are you going to go on Twitter, then? I don't even know what you mean, Tom. <laughs> tweet, tweet. Oh. <laughs> uh, no, I doubt it. Thank you, Jamie. Thanks, Tom. So it goes. Thanks for listening. You can check out our website or send me an email on talk at bloodyviolenthistory.com and go on leave us a review and five lovely stars. Thank you and good luck.